Good afternoon to everyone. I'd like to welcome our guests this afternoon and also appreciate that special music. It was very pretty. You know, on a beautiful day like this, with the bright blue sky, the sunshine, hardly a cloud to be seen, it's hard to realize that we're living in Satan's world, unless you read the newspapers unless you watch the uh, news broadcasts on television. You know, where you all we read about, it seems like, is strife and suffering and corruption. We read about the war in the Middle East, and then we read about the bathroom wars in North Carolina that appeared to be destined to spread around the country and probably around the Western world. Now, this is not what God wants for mankind, but it's the world we live in today. You know, it's amazing you can make a statement of fact and be taken into court for hate speech. You can make a casual observation, maybe an unguarded comment, and you could be charged with microaggression. Now, you may have to look that up in a dictionary. But these are the things that are happening today. You know, we're living in Satan's world, and in Satan's world there's a tendency to judge other people very quickly. We're quick to judge in this world. You know, we label people as liberals and conservatives. He's a lazy person or he's a jerk. Uh, That person is rude. They're vain. They're stuck on themselves. They're stingy. They're stupid. They're a snob. For some reason in this society, it seems to make people feel good to be able to judge other people. But that's the world in which we live today, unfortunately. And yet, you know, Jesus Christ gave us some very different advice. You know, in Matthew chapter 7, he mentions, judge not. In other words, don't condemn other people. Judge not that you be not judged. And then he makes the comment, you know, get the plank out of your own eye before you try and take a speck out of somebody else's eye. This is the biblical approach. The point of the scripture is that Christ's instructions to his own disciples was examine yourselves. Examine yourself and don't be judging and criticizing other people. We just completed the Days of Unleavened Bread not too long ago, and this is really the thrust of the Days of Unleavened Bread, that we're to examine ourselves. Again, the self-examination is a vital step in God's plan of salvation. Because he wants us to learn some lessons. And there are reasons why God tells us to examine ourselves. We're going to talk about some of those reasons in the the, uh, sermon today. But I wanted to share a little story that illustrates why we need to examine ourselves. There's a guy named Bert who went to the doctor. He said, Doc, I think my wife is hard of hearing, but she doesn't want to come to a doctor. What can I do? And the doctor said, look, you go home, and here's how you can tell whether your wife is hard of hearing or not. You go home, stand in the living room, and she's getting dinner ready. Just say in a very normal voice, honey, what's for dinner? If you don't hear anything, then you walk out into the hallway and say, honey, what's for dinner? You do this several times till you get right up behind her in the kitchen. So that way you'll be able to tell if she's hard of hearing. So that night he goes home and he smells something in the kitchen. So he says in the living room, Honey, what's, what's for dinner? He 
doesn't hear a thing. So he walks out into the hallway. Honey, what's for dinner? He doesn't hear a thing. He walks to the edge of the kitchen door. He says, honey, what's for dinner? He doesn't hear a thing. He walks right up behind her and says, honey, what's for dinner? She turns around and said, chicken, and I've told you four times. <laughs> His wife didn't have a problem. <laughs> he had the problem. But he was looking at her, and he wasn't looking at himself. You know, some years ago, our family went to the island nation of Haiti for, I think it was the Day of Atonement. And I, in Haiti, they speak two languages down there, two different languages. They speak French, and they speak Creole. And I remember asking the minister there, I said, what, what language do you speak down here? What's the most effective language to speak? And I'll never forget his answer. He said, if you speak French, you speak to their mind. If you speak Creole, you speak to their heart. Because the common people speak Creole. It's a mixture of a number of different languages. You speak to their minds. It's the intellects, the, the educated people that speak French. In the sermon today, I want to speak to your minds. And I want to speak to your hearts. I've got a double approach there. I want to speak to your minds. If you're a young person, I want to reach your mind. If you're an adult. I want to jog your minds a little bit, too. I'd like you to think about your life. How are you living your life? How do you want to live your life? Where do you want to wind up in five years? In ten years? Do you want to be in the kingdom of God? How you live your life can help you achieve your most important goals if you think very carefully about it and if you make wise decisions as you're growing up and as you move through your years. So I want to reach your minds with questions like that. Where do you want to be? Where do you want to go? What goals do you want to achieve? How do you want to live your life? But I also want to reach your hearts. My goal is to motivate you so that you will take some action on what we're going to be talking about today. And sometimes we come to church, well, that was a good sermon, or that I didn't like that sermon very well, but it doesn't really motivate us. It doesn't really move us. And this is what I want to do this afternoon, to reach your hearts, to motivate you to act on what we're going to be talking about today. Now, in order to reach your minds, I want to ask several questions, some, some important questions. Now, when you hear the questions, you're going to say, oh, but those are so basic. We want to hear something new, something exciting, not, not this basic stuff. But, you know, how you answer these basic questions will determine how you're going to live your life. And those answers are going to determine your future. And they're going to determine where you're going to wind up in five years or ten years or a number of other years down the road. So the questions I want to ask, and they're basic, but I'm asking them for a reason. 
Are you a Christian? Now your response is, oh, of course I am. Why are you asking questions like that? But I'll ask it again. Are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? You know, as we heard in the announcements and you know, some of the other comments that have been made, we're living in a very different world today. We're living in a world where people that profess to believe in Jesus Christ are being persecuted, they're being mocked, they're being told you're, you're outdated, you're weird. Why are you a Christian? Why would you want to be a Christian when you're going to face stuff like that? Why would you want to be a Christian as a young person? If you're looking at 20, 30, 40, 50 years of this kind of an approach to what you believe and how you want to live your life. Another question would be, what kind of Christian are you? What do you mean, what kind of Christian am I? The Bible talks about several different kinds of Christians. My question would be, what kind are you? And finally, why does this matter anyways? What you do is your business. What I do is my business. Why are we talking about this today? Why why does it even matter? As we go through the sermon, I'd like you to think about and remember something that's very fundamental. What you believe will determine how you act. What you believe will determine how you act, and your actions will determine how you live and where you wind up. In five years, in ten years, in maybe 50 years down the road, where do you want to wind up? Where do you want to be as you approach the end of your life? Where do you want to be halfway through your life? You know, I've had some rather sobering experiences in the last several months, traveling around, visiting different congregations. I've run into people that were students in college when my wife and I were there. They were young girls, young men at God's college, and they had hopes for a very exciting life, a marriage that would be wonderful and exciting and just go on and go on and go on. Got married, a number of them went out into the field. Some were ministers, some were ministers' wives. It's been very sobering to run into some of these people and say, how are you? Well, I went through a terrible divorce or Uh, friends of mine left the church. These were not the hopes and dreams that they had when they were at Ambassador College. But this is how lives turned out. Where do you want to be in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years? The decisions you make and the answers you come up with to the questions that I just asked are going to determine to a large extent, what your future is going to be. I've entitled this sermon, Are You a Christian? Are you a Christian? And as we go through the sermon, I'd like you to examine your own thoughts, your own reactions, uh, as you think about and hear about the uh, questions that we're going to be talking about. So let's look at the first question. Are you a Christian? How would you know? How would you know whether or not you're a Christian? 
well, I come to church, and I'm here on the Sabbath, and I believe in Jesus, so I must be a Christian. Again, how would you know that you're a Christian? You know, we live in a world today with very fuzzy definitions. It seems like every day those definitions get even fuzzier. You know, we used to understand what right and wrong was. But today, it's a big debate. Well, how do you know what's right? And how do you know what's wrong? That's just your opinion. But, you know, we used to know. We were taught what was right, what was wrong. Today, we don't seem to understand what the definition of marriage is. You know, we were taught long ago, back in the Stone Age, (laughs) that marriage was between a man and a woman. And yet today, we talk about a marriage might be between two men or two women or a guy and his dog or a lady and her cat. I guess recently we heard somebody's going to marry themselves. These are totally different definitions from what we used to understand. And then the latest thing is, well, uh, how do you know whether you're a boy or a girl? You know, we used to use biology and anatomy as a guide. (laughs) You could look in the mirror and figure it out. (laughs) But today it's based on feelings. Well, today I feel like a girl. Or today I feel like a man, even though I might be a girl. This is the world we live in. It's confused. It's messed up because we've thrown away the basic guidelines. And we're dealing with these fuzzy definitions. Okay, back to our question. How do you know if you're a Christian? What is a Christian? What are the world's definition? What is the world's definition of a Christian? And basically, it's people that believe in Jesus, that he's the Savior, and that he's the Son of God. And on this basis... There's probably some 2 billion Christians in the world. That's one of the definitions. We're also told that Christians believe in a triune God, a a trinity, and that this is a basic fundamental principle of Christianity. Another one of the definitions. People are told if you keep Christmas and celebrate the birthday of Jesus Christ, and you keep Easter, you celebrate the resurrection, Uh, And if you keep Sunday, then you're a Christian. Now, this is the world's approach. We're told that people who love their neighbors and hope to go to heaven, and these are probably pretty nice people, well, these are wonderful Christians. But that's not exactly true. I'd like you to turn to a scripture. I don't think I ever read this scripture or was ever read this scripture by a minister before he came in contact with the church of God. In James chapter 2, verse 19, and notice how this contrasts with the idea, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in God, if you keep you know, go to church on Sunday, then you're a Christian. But notice what James says here in verse 19. You believe there is one God... You do well. Even the demons believe. Even the demons believe there is one God. And they tremble at that. They know who God is. 
So believing in God is not necessarily, does not necessarily make a person a Christian. Just believing in Jesus Christ doesn't make a person a Christian. Another scripture you don't need to turn to, but in Matthew, excuse me, Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 to 6, you know, Jesus was being tempted by Satan. And Satan comes up to him and says, if you are the son of God, he knew who he was talking to. He said, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And up on the spire of the temple, he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself off. And you can call a bunch of angels and they'll catch you on the way down. Satan knew that Jesus Christ was the son of God. So just believing in Jesus, believing he's the son of God, does not necessarily make us a Christian. Turn to Matthew chapter 8. And the Bible is helping us understand what a Christian is and what not necessarily, and what a Christian is not necessarily. Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. Now Jesus had crossed the Sea of Galilee, and they came to a, an area on the other side of the sea. It says, where he met two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, excessively fierce, so that no one could uh, pass that way. And suddenly they cry out, this is the demons within these two men. These demons cried out and said, what do we have to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? So the demons recognized who Jesus was. They called him Jesus, but notice then he says, have you come to torment us before the time? These demons knew that God has a plan and he has a purpose and he's going to deal with these spirit beings down the road. So believing in God, believing in Jesus, knowing that God has a plan and purpose doesn't necessarily make us a Christian. You know, we need to be careful that we don't kind of slip into the world's fuzzy definitions of what makes a Christian and assume that we're a Christian when we may not be. Again, just believing in Jesus as the Savior and the Son of God does not mean that we're a Christian. And one of the reasons for the confusion that we have today about sex is we ignore the facts of biology and the obvious facts of anatomy. But we, just, we, we don't worry about those things. We depend on our feelings to define things. The reason we're confused about marriage is because we've rejected the manual. We've rejected the book that defines what marriage is. And as a result... We've got a very confusing situation. But you know, the same thing is true about definitions of Christians or the definition of a Christian. The way to tell whether we are a Christian is to look at the biblical definition. What, how does the Bible define what a Christian is? And as we go through this, don't judge the person sitting next to you. <laughs> don't judge your friends that might, their name might come into your mind or your parents, or your children, or the ministers. That's an easy one. How come he's up there? He's not a good Christian. <laughs> I know you wouldn't say that, but some people do. Because um, that's easy. That's another person that we can judge. But what is the biblical definition? How do, how do we find out? Go to Acts chapter 11. 
You know, the word Christian or the term Christian, the label Christian, is mentioned only three times in the scriptures. And this is one of the places. Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 21. is a descriptive term here. Verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. So this is what they were preaching about, the life and the activities and the teachings of Jesus Christ. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas as far as Antioch. They heard things were moving up there, so they sent uh, Barnabas up to that area. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. He saw what God was doing there. And he encouraged them all with a purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. In other words, following the teachings of Jesus Christ. And then it says in verse 25, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. He wanted to get some help up there. And when he had found him, whenever Barnabas had found Saul, Paul, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. They were teaching about Jesus Christ, talking about his teachings, his way of life what Christianity is all about. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Some of the Bible, uh, other translations say these were disciples of Christ or they were Christ followers. They were following his teaching. They were following his example. They were called Christians. Another example, you can just jot these in your notes, Acts 26, verse 28 where Paul is brought before King Agrippa. He was being interrogated. Paul gave his testimony, and it was so convincing. King Agrippa said, Paul, you're beside yourself, but you're almost convincing me to be a Christian. That was not a compliment. It was kind of a derogatory term because Christians weren't real popular at that point. He said, Paul, you know, you're awful convincing, and you're almost convincing me to be a Christian. The third reference, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, is in 1 Peter 4:16, where it talks about Christians are going to suffer. Christians are going to suffer. So these three references to the word Christian, one is descriptive, that they were followers of Jesus Christ. One is kind of derogatory, that you know, I, I wouldn't be a Christian, but you're almost convincing me to be one. And then the third reference is there's going to be suffering if we're going to be a Christian. But what did Jesus actually teach? What were the disciples learning? How would we recognize a true Christian? If you want to be a true Christian, what do you have to do? What do we have to do to become Christians? Let me make a couple of references here. In Mark chapter 1, let's turn back there to Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. It's talking about the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ, what he was preaching about, what he was telling people. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee 
preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, I'm here, I'm a representative of it, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus was not talking about going to heaven. Yet many people believe today, well, I'm a Christian, I believe in Christ, and I'm going to go to heaven. That's not the gospel that Jesus Christ was talking about. He was talking about a kingdom that was going to be set up on this earth. Again, I'm preaching to the choir. I recognize you know these things. But brethren, there are probably close to 2 billion people that have a very different concept of what being a Christian is all about because they don't use the book. They use their feelings. Oh, it feels so good. I'm going to be up there looking down on this whole mess and just watching everything down there, and I'll be raptured off to heaven. Everybody, all these other poor souls are going to be down here. This is the false gospel that's been preached today. But Jesus preached the gospel about a coming kingdom of God. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, He did not preach the gospel about going to heaven. Let me give you three quick scriptures here that basically nail this down. In John 3.13, Jesus said, No one has ascended up into heaven except he who came down from heaven. So Jesus himself said, Nobody's going to heaven. Nobody's already ascended up there. John 3.13 and Acts 2.34. Acts 2.34, Peter said, David did not go to heaven. You'd think, well, David was a man after God's own heart. He's obviously up there with all the angels. And yet Peter said he did not go to heaven. In Acts 13.36, it says there that David is in the grave. He went to sleep. He died. His body's decayed. He's not in heaven. These, again, are some scriptures that we we never want to forget these things because the world thinks, many people think, that they're going to heaven. And yet the Bible clearly says, nope, it's not going to work out that way. There's something better. There's something better. Again, growing up, I never really wanted to go to heaven because it was way up there. I wanted to find out what was going on down here. (laughs) This was more exciting. Um... You know, I mentioned this before. I never figured out how you get a harp to stay on a cloud. <laughs> you can barely carry one of those big harps around now. And you try and put that on a cloud, it ain't going to work. <laughs> it's not going to happen. You know, if we just would read the book and not throw the book away and try and defend, depend on our feelings, we've got to defend, depend on what the facts are. Matthew chapter 4, verses 17 to 19. Jesus told his disciples, repent and follow me. Now that word repent is seldom used today. The terms today are give your heart to the Lord. Just trust God and everything will be fine. But the word repent means to turn around with sorrow and move in a different direction. It means change. It means change your life. I think most of us came to understand these things whenever we realized we should be keeping the Sabbath, we should be keeping the holy days. I remember talking with a Jewish fellow one time. He said it was really hard for him to accept Jesus Christ as the Savior and the Son of God. 
because the Jews don't look at Jesus Christ that way. And we spent some time in Jordan a number of years ago, and uh, <clears throat> the Muslims talk about Jesus Christ being a prophet, but you mentioned he's the son of God. This, this, <laughs> this creates problems because they don't believe that at all. They don't believe that at all. But Jesus told his disciples, repent and follow me. You know, get in line. Follow in my footsteps. Follow my teachings. If we're going to be a Christian, we've got to study the scriptures and actually begin to do what we read in the scriptures. You know, in 2 Corinthians six seventeen, you can jot these scriptures down and look at them. He said, we need to come out of this world. Come out of this world. You can't just drift along with the world. I remember talking with a young person one time. said, you know, I'm learning. said, I think I'm learning an important lesson. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Have you ever tried getting onto a boat, a rowboat or a canoe, and you put one foot on the gunnel of the canoe and one foot on the, on the dock? What happens? <laughs> the boat moves unless it's tied up, and you go in the water. You can't have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. It's not going to work. But, you know, young people try it, adults try it, and it never works. It never works. We've got to come out of this world, come out of this world's customs. You know, for many people today, we've got to get a tattoo, and we've got to get a bunch of earrings and a nose ring and maybe a tongue ring and ring in your belly button, and I won't go any further. <laughs> but this is one of the customs of the world. And God says, basically, don't do stuff like that. You're different. You need to stand out in a right way. We're to leave this world's values behind. We're to leave this world's values behind and leave this world's politics behind. You know, we're going to be facing an election here in the United States. We're going to be facing elections other places too. But we're told very clearly in Scripture... A couple of other scriptures to jot down. 2 Corinthians 5.20. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. You know, the British ambassador that comes to the United States to live does not get involved with American politics. The American ambassador to wherever does not get involved with the politics of these other countries. We are representing another kingdom, another government, the government of Jesus Christ. We're to come out of this world and be separate. You know, we're not trying to change this world. Remember the comments we made at the very beginning? Jesus said, judge yourself. You know, change yourself. Get in harmony with my teachings. And then I'll be able to use you to change the world because you've developed a different set of values. You're focused in a very different direction. Let's look at another scripture in Romans. In Romans chapter 8. This makes some people nervous, but we need to read it because this is the, what we read in the book. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> beginning in verse 5. And Paul is talking here about the Holy Spirit. He's giving examples, explaining how it works. 
says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. Church is going to be over at 4 o'clock. We can get out of here at 5. What am I going to do tonight? Where am I going to go? Can I get drunk? What can I do that's exciting? Where is your mind? Where is your mind? I know the church doesn't recommend this movie, but I heard it's really good. Let's go see it in the crosstown so nobody will notice who we are. Where is your mind? Where is your focus? What Paul is saying, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who are living according to the Spirit, in other words, they want to be guided by God's Spirit. They want to do things God's way. They focus on things of the Spirit. Now Paul talks here a little bit about where are you going to wind up. For to be carnally minded, to focus on the things of the flesh, is death. That's what the consequences will be. You will die. That will be the end of things. But to be spiritually minded is life. There's even a reference to eternal life. A peaceful life now. A more exciting life. And peace. There's a piece in the paper this morning about a family that their son got involved with a drug that's more powerful than heroin. He got addicted to it. And he died from an overdose. He said, my son started with something he got from a friend to try. And he said, I had this wild feeling. It was like nothing I ever had before, and i got to have more of that. He started out with half of a pill. He wound up doing 10 pills in the morning, 10 pills in the afternoon, and apparently died of an overdose. His dad works for a funeral home. He said, I've seen a lot of these kids come through here, not just kids, and they all look the same. They're emaciated. They're all drawn up because of this drug overdose. They were taking something based on feelings. Make me feel good. Makes me feel different. You know, I lived in a fraternity house for three years when I was in college. And there were a lot of drinking parties. I can remember watching guys hanging over a toilet, throwing up. But they'd do this again and again and again. It must have been because they made them feel so good. <laughs> it didn't look like fun. <laughs> but those of us that didn't do that were kind of ridiculed. What's the matter with you? You afraid? You goody two shoes? You're better than we are? No, I watched what they were doing, and somehow that didn't look exciting. But somehow this is a brave new world. When you get away from your parents, you can do all kind of stuff like this. And some adults never stop. They never grow up. We were in, I think, Del Mar, someplace there along the coast in California, and we're trying to find a parking place. I saw a bunch of guys, several guys walking along with their surfboards and they had gray hair that ran down to their shoulders and a beard and a mustache. These guys were 50, 60 years old. But they never graduated from surfboards number 101. That was still what they were doing. I don't know whether they had a job or not, but they were surf bums. Romans. Paul says here, if you're guided by the Spirit of God, uh, this is going to be worthwhile. 
Verse 8 says, then those who are in the flesh, in other words, who don't have God's spirit, they're focused totally on the physical, cannot please God. Verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And what Paul is saying is if you don't have God's spirit, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian if you don't have God's spirit. Now, for young people, you can desire to have God's spirit, and that will come if you do certain things. You know, in Acts 2.38, it says, Repent and be baptized, and you'll receive the gift of God's spirit. So there are things you have to do. You know, I remember listening to some religious radio whenever I was coming into the church back in Mississippi 40-some years ago. And there was a whole series of radio evangelists that would come on before or after our program came on. And the one guy said, you want to receive God's spirit, just reach out and touch the radio. <laughs> and I'll pray, and you'll receive God's spirit. Well, it doesn't work that way. I remember talking with a man or woman, I don't remember which, called me up one time when I was pastoring and he said, uh, I need to get baptized. He said, I've already got God's spirit, but now I want to get baptized. I said, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you repent, you're baptized, have hands laid on you, then you'll receive the gift of God's spirit. Well, I've already got it. I just need somebody to baptize me. I said, well, maybe you should look for someplace else because you're going about it the wrong way. But we're told in Acts 2.38, if we repent, we change, and we're baptized, and if hands laid on us, then we'll receive the gift of God's Spirit. But again, we've got to repent first. Another fellow that we worked with a number of years ago, it looked like he repented. He was keeping the Sabbath. He came to church. Uh, the other fellow I was working with, we had our reservations. But it appeared that he had repented. So we baptized him. We gave him the benefit of the doubt. And within two or three weeks, he wasn't coming to church anymore. And I called him up and I said, what, what happened? He said, you know, we baptized you. You wanted to be baptized. We laid hands on you. He said, I don't think I need to come to church. That's your opinion. He never received God's spirit. There was no attitude of repentance there. It was kind of like uh, he was actually trying to uh, develop a relationship with another lady who was not baptized, but uh, we baptized her at the same time. And I think he was coming because of her. He wasn't coming because he had repented or changed. So what we're told is if we repent, we change our life. And it's not just a one-time thing. This, this attitude of repentance has to continue. I want to grow. I want to change. I want to learn. You know, we come to church so that we can learn to be better Christians, to walk more fully in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. In Acts 5.32, it says that God gives his spirit to anyone that asks for it. Let's go to Acts 5.32. That's not exactly what is said there. Acts 5.32 says that God gives his spirit 
to those who obey him. So he gives his spirit to those who obey him. That they are doing what Jesus Christ said to do. They're not rebellious. They're not doing their own thing. They're doing what God's asked them to do. And we could spend a whole sermon on, you know, why would you want the Holy Spirit and what do you have to do whenever God gives you his spirit? You know, we've got to nourish that spirit daily. 2 Corinthians 4.16. We've got to nourish it. We spend time reading the Bible, learning how God thinks, and then striving to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.14 says we've got to be led by God's spirit. You read about how a Christian should live, and then you want to do the same thing. We need to be led by God's spirit. And then we need to strive to develop the fruits of God's spirit, the love. This is an unselfish, outgoing concern for other people. Joy. When somebody comes up, how's your day? Terrible. How'd you sleep last night? No good. I bought a t-shirt whenever I was up in California here recently. And said something about, uh, I'm going to blow this because I don't remember exactly what was on the (laughs) t-shirt. It was something like, uh, I'm not having a good day. I only talked to one person today, and it's not you. (laughs) It was pretty blunt. I thought I'd wear it and let the secretary see that when I was wearing it. But joy, finding a reason to be joyful whenever things are difficult. Mr. Armstrong used to always say, God is on his throne. Somebody else used to say that too. (laughs) It is no longer around. But God is on his throne. He is guiding things. And things are going to work out according to his plan and purpose. And that there is an ultimate reward coming. We need to focus on that big picture. Dr. Meredith talked in his final message to us at the uh, council meeting about focusing on the big picture, never losing sight of that big picture. Because that's what gives us hope. That's what makes life really exciting when we stay focused on this big picture. In 1 Thessalonians 5.19, and this is sobering, it says, quench not the spirit. Quench not the spirit, which means you can lose God's spirit. You know, if, if something would... Fire would develop here, something here on the floor. We get a short and a spark, and this rug starts to to burn. We take the glass of water, pour the water on it, and we put the fire out. We quench it. But Paul is saying in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, don't quench God's spirit. And we just mentioned that we need to be nourishing God's spirit every day. As we study the Bible, as we meditate on the scriptures, We allow those things to flow through our minds. We're nourishing God's spirit. And you'll be a different person if you do that. But if we don't nourish that spirit, sometimes as Christians we we try and get along on fumes (laughs) instead of gasoline, on fumes. Well, I didn't have time to pray this morning, didn't have time to study, didn't have time to do this and that. One day leads to another, and then you begin compromising on other things. We've got to be nourishing God's spirit. It's there to help us. Even if you're not baptized, you keep your nose in the book. Do what you need to do. Let those things run through your mind. 
You know, I spent four years in worldly college. <clears throat> I was not baptized, not in the church. But I did develop a habit of reading the Bible. And many times through those four years, I read the book of Proverbs. One proverb or chapter a day. And it kept me out of trouble. It kept me from making some bad decisions that I saw other people making. I wasn't converted at that time. But by staying close to God and, and nourishing uh, <clears throat> certain values, it'll pay off. It'll pay off big time. Some other things very quickly. Notice in Luke 4.16, how can we recognize we are a Christian? Luke 4.16. Luke mentions here, but Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So it was Christ's custom to keep the Sabbath. Why was he doing that? Because it says in Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It doesn't say remember Sunday. It says remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But here is Luke showing us that Jesus Christ kept the Sabbath not just because it was his custom, he was doing that because God commanded those things. Now if you go to Acts 17, Acts 17, verse 2. Now Luke wrote both of these books. And he's telling us something about the Apostle Paul. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphiopolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews, then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. You know, Luke uses this phrase only in two places in the New Testament. Same phrase as his custom was. He used in Luke 4.16. The same phrase is used in Acts 17.2. Paul, as his custom was. So what Luke is showing us is that uh, Paul was following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. He was following his teachings. He was following his example. And this is something we need to do. You know, other scriptures talk about Jesus keeping the feast. John 7, verses 8 to 10. Jesus told his followers, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up yet. But then he did go up and he spoke at the feast. In 1 Corinthians 5, 8. Paul tells the church, this was primarily a Gentile church, to keep the feast. To keep the feast. That's why we do these things. Because we're following the teachings of Jesus Christ. We're following the teachings of the apostles. Let's look at another scripture in John 15. And the question we need to be thinking about in our minds, am I a Christian? Am I doing these things? Does this describe me? And not worry about you know, what... Somebody else is doing. John 15, <clears throat> verse 14. says, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. You're my friends if you do whatever I command you. Back in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments. Uh, the scripture I'm looking for here is, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, verse 15. 
John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, the arguments today are, well, Jesus only gave us two commandments. And they will quote Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40, where the Pharisee comes to Christ or the Sadducee comes to Christ and says, what's the, there's a lawyer, I think it was, came to Christ, says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love God with all your heart. And the second is, is, is like unto it, love your neighbor. And some people today say, that's all we have to do. We only have to keep those two commandments. It's all these other commandments, 600 and whatever they are, it's for the Jews. As Christians, we don't have to do those things. And yet, you know, if you go back to Matthew chapter 5, you go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus makes the statement here. Matthew 5, 17. I did not come to destroy the law. I did not come to destroy. Let me get the right page here. Think not that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to do away with prophecy. I didn't come to do away with the law. But I came to fulfill. Again, the the arguments are well, he came to fulfill it because we can't do it. You know, so he fulfilled it for us. Um, <clears throat> Mr. Simone could have gone back one or two more verses in Colossians because it talks about nailing something to the cross. Many people believe, well, Christ nailed the law to the cross so we don't have to keep it. That'd be another difficult scripture to go through. He didn't nail the law to the cross. He nailed our sins to the cross. But these are things where the world has gone off on what they want to read into those scriptures. But Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. The word here is plero in the Greek, P-L-E-R-O. And it means to complete the law. To complete the law. And if people would just read through the rest of Matthew 5, he gives several examples. He said, you know, in the Old Testament it was said that you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't kill But I am telling you, don't run down people. Don't make fun of people. Don't ridicule people because you're assassinating their character. So there's a physical application. Don't kill people. There's a spiritual application. Don't run down people. Don't make fun of people. This is how a Christian should function. And he talks about... uh, you know, the Old Testament says you shouldn't commit adultery, but he said if you look at a person, whether it's a man, whether it's a woman, or she's got a beautiful figure, or he's got such dreamy blue eyes, <laughs> or brown eyes, or whatever it is, one blue, one green. <laughs> I, I like the contrast. <laughs> you know, it just puts me in orbit. <laughs> what Christ is explaining. I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to expand its meaning, to complete its meaning. He didn't fulfill it because we couldn't do it. He's showing us there's another dimension. There's another dimension. And the question comes up is, well, if I'm keeping the law, if I'm coming to church on the Sabbath, and if I go to the feast, does that make me a Christian? Does that make you a Christian? Let's go to John 13. 
Your critics like that will say, if you try and keep all the law, you're trying to earn your own salvation. Uh, you're just got a salvation. You've got a belief about works, salvation by works. So that's the critics' approach. But I think sometimes in the Church of God, we can comfort ourselves. Well, I keep the Sabbath. I keep the holy days. I keep all those laws. So I'm a Christian. But notice what Jesus says here in John 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. The word here is agape. It's an unselfish, outgoing concern. Your focus is on other people. That you love one another. To love one another. To love your neighbor. But notice in verse 35, By this... Not by keeping the Sabbath, not by keeping the holy days. It says, by this, all will know, everyone will know that you are my disciples, my followers. You are Christ followers, your disciples of me, if you have love for one another. That you care about other people. You know, a definition of leadership that I've heard some time ago and I've used a number of times. A leader is a person. A leader is a person who cares enough to want to change circumstances that are hurting other people. That's not the leaders that we have today in many cases. They want to get as much as they can while they're there. But the leaders we need and the leaders that Jesus Christ is going to use in his coming kingdom are going to be people who care enough to want to change circumstances that are hurting other people. They want to change the world. They want to make life better for other human beings, not just for themselves. So keeping the law does not just necessarily make us a Christian. Of course, we have to do those things. We need to keep the Sabbath. We need to keep the holy days. We need to do these things. But Jesus says there's another bigger dimension. Notice in John 15, verse 13, 12 and 13. He was talking about this on the night before he was crucified with his disciples, kind of going over the basics before he would leave them temporarily. John 15, starting verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another. He's talking with his disciples. He said, look, look guys, this, this is what you need to focus on. This is my commandment that you love one another. And if you read some of the other accounts of the Passover, these guys were arguing that night in the presence of Jesus Christ, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest? They were arguing about that at the Passover. And yet when you put this statement in that context, he's trying to let them know, look, there's another dimension here you're not getting yet. You will get down the road. This is my commandment, that you love one another. Greater love has no man than this, than you lay down one's life for your friends. He laid down his life for people that killed him, that mocked him. Our calling is to lay down part of our lives for other people, to be willing to listen, to be willing to encourage, to go out of our way to serve. This is what a Christian does. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. 
go to Matthew chapter 5, because it doesn't stop here. This is a theme that runs through the New Testament, that runs through the Bible. Matthew chapter 5, just looking at a couple of verses there. These are also qualities that we need to be striving to develop if we want to be a Christian. Qualities we need to be developing. In verse um, 7 of Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Well, you're not coming down hard on people. You're looking for ways to be merciful, to deal with people gently. You know, as a spirit being with all kinds of power, if we don't bring that power in or use it wisely, you know, if Jesus Christ comes back to earth after he's given you, say, a city, and it looks like uh, the city up in Canada that just got burned over, and he says, what's going on? Well, I, I got carried away. <laughs> I got a little upset. <clears throat> I burned up half the town. I'm sorry. No, God's going to have to see that we <laughs> are able to control our temper physically before he gives us this power uh, that he wants to give us. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. What does pure in heart mean? It means you're not trying to read motives into people's actions. Well, he came up to me after church and just looked at me. Maybe he was trying to remember what he was going to ask you. <laughs> yeah, but I think he was going to get me for something. He was going to nail me. I know he doesn't like me because I always see him sitting out there. He's got a, crown, a frown on his face. No, we don't want to read motives into people. We need to have a pure heart. And we don't need to be naive. But we don't want to read motives into people that they don't have. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's not people that sell Colt 45 revolvers. It's people that know how to pour oil on troubled waters. And they can calm situations down. These are all qualities that God is looking for. You might want to read through 1 Corinthians 13. What love, how love is described in the book. And that's going to be a very different description than you'll get off the internet listening to popular songs. I remember when I was growing up, there was a song, Love is Five Feet of Heaven and a Ponytail. <laughs> Talk about a girl. <laughs> the sways with the wiggle when she walks. Talking about the ponytail. <laughs> but that's totally different. Uh, it was a mood, uh, what was the song out of South Pacific? Somewhere across a crowded room. I see this person. I just know. But that's not how real love develops. So it might help, you know, if you're attracted to somebody. But the Bible tells us what real love is involved. It's patient, it's forgiving. This is what love is all about, Christian love. In uh, 2 Peter 1, verses 5 to 11, Peter's talking about things to add to your faith. So you got faith, you believe in God, you believe in Jesus Christ, fine. Now he says add some of these things to that. And he talks about uh, courage, he talks about uh, a number of things, knowledge. But he says add brotherly kindness. That could be sisterly kindness. Where you deal with people kindly. 
not gruffly, not rudely, but add brotherly kindness and add love, this agape love, this unselfish outgoing concern. And if you do that, you're going to be focused outward and not inward. Many people today, they're focused inward, just me and God, you know, and I want to be in, in, in the kingdom of God, and I want God to love me. But that's an inward focus. A Christian is going to be focused outwardly. What can I do to help mankind? What can I do to preach the gospel? You know, an outward focus is going to be focusing on preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God to this world. That this world has a Savior that's going to come and give his life, or has come and give his life for all mankind. It's going to be focusing on doing the work. John 4, verse 34, Jesus said, my meat, my focus, my uh, mission is to do the will of the one who sent me. And that's going to involve warning this world about what is coming, the significance of these changes that we're seeing today that are going totally opposite what we read in the scriptures. Warning the world, preparing a people. Why do we have spokesman's clubs? Why do we have ambassador clubs at Ambassador College? Why do we have Living University? Why do we have sermons and Bible studies to prepare a people? Not just for us to talk. Where are you going to be in five years? What will you be doing in the coming kingdom of God? You're being prepared to change the world. You know, take the notes that you can, study those notes, study the scriptures, because it may not be that long. You know, when I first came into the church, we memorized the name of 15 evangelists that we had. Most of them are gone. And now I are one. <laughs> Where are you going to be in 20 or 30 years? What will you be doing? What would you like to do? Would you like to change the world? We have an opportunity now to get ready. So these are some things to think about. We're running out of time, but let me mention a couple more questions. Why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Why would you want to be a Christian? You know, when Jesus told his disciples the night before he was crucified, John 16, verse 1 to 3, he says, in this world, you're going to experience tribulation. And people may kill you. Peter mentions in 1 Peter 4.16, you may suffer in this life as a Christian. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to be a Christian and actually face these things? You know, as Dr. Meredith has said, we need to focus on the big picture. What is the big picture? What are the rewards of being a Christian? What's in it for you, in, in a sense? What are some of the benefits that are offered to Christians? We could go through a bunch of scriptures. Let's just look at one, Matthew 19. Matthew 19, this is where Jesus was talking with his disciples. And he's answering kind of a question that Peter asks. Matthew 19, verse 27, Peter answered and said to him, says, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. Therefore, what do we have? In other words, what's in it for us if, we're be, if, we were been, if we have been willing to give up everything? Notice Jesus' response. 
Assuredly, I say unto you, in the regeneration, in the resurrection, when the Son of Man sits on his throne of his glory, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's their job. They may be a governor, but the governor is going to need people underneath them. The Gentile nations are going to need people over them to show them the way. He said, this is what's in it for you. This is why they were arguing the night of the Passover. I want to be top dog. They knew what was coming, and they wanted to be part of it. He says, you're going to be over the 12 tribes of Israel, verse 29. And everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, wife or children, and lands for my sake to follow Jesus Christ shall inherit a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So you're going to become, you're going to be blessed even more for whatever you gave up. Maybe jot in your margin here again, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 29 and 30 to 31. Jesus said pretty much the same thing, but he adds a phrase. He says, now in this life, you're going to be blessed with things. These are some of the promises that God makes. He talks about eternal life, John 3:16. Whoever believes in me will have eternal life. And that's where many so-called Christians stop reading. Well, I believe in Jesus, so I'm going to have eternal life. End of story. No, it's not the end of the story. We've got to keep the laws of God. We've got to follow his teachings. It's more than just believing. We're going to become, we have the opportunity of being resurrected or changed into immortal spirit beings when Christ returns. You know, Christians are going to become the action figures in the kingdom of God, if we can put it that way. Just notice and remember what Jesus did. He came walking on the water to the disciples when they were out in the boat, and they thought it was a ghost but he was walking on the water. They couldn't believe that. When I was in Mississippi, and Mississippi played uh, University of Alabama, Bear Bryant was the coach, the football coach. It was a cartoon of this man with an Alabama sweatshirt on walking across the water because that was how they looked at Bear Bryant <laughs> in Alabama. He could walk on water. He couldn't do anything wrong. Now, we're going to have the opportunity to do things like that. Christ was sleeping in a boat. A storm came up in the Sea of Galilee. He got up and he said, stop. And the waves calmed down. And his disciples just looked at him. How did he do that? How did he do that? He appeared to his disciples after the resurrection, talked with them a little bit, and then he was gone. And we see this in Hollywood movies, and it looks, that's pretty cool. We read it in the Bible, and it's kind of like, does that really happen? According to Peter, he said, we were eyewitnesses. We were eyewitnesses of what we told you. These are the things that are going to happen. These are, this is the future that we have. We can become part of God's family. You know, we want to be part of the family. We like to be included. You know, we have the opportunity of becoming part of God's family. He's our dad. Jesus Christ is our elder brother. 
we've been called to become part of that family. This is going to be exciting. This is going to be exciting. Let's conclude. What kind of Christian are you? You might read Revelation chapter 3 because it talks about Sardis. It says they have a name. They're dead. They're not doing a work. They're just existing. There's no works. Talks about Philadelphians. They have a name, which means brotherly love. They have works. They're going through open doors that God opens. It says you're going to be protected from the tribulation. But you've got to overcome. But if you do, there's going to be crowns awaiting you. It also talks about Laodiceans. They have some works. It says they're lukewarm. It says they're going to go through the tribulation because they weren't doing a big work and because they were trusting in themselves. These are three options. And where you are, where you wind up, depends on the choices that you make. Okay, why does this matter? You know, today the message is to each his own, whatever feels good to you, do it. There's nothing really right, nothing really wrong, just be cool. And it'll all work out. The Bible has a very different message. Go to Matthew chapter 7 quickly. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is talking primarily here to Christians, people that believe in him and think they're following in his footsteps. Verse 21, Matthew chapter 7. This is a caution we need to be aware of. We need to think about this. And again, the decisions that we make, how to live our life, is going to determine where we're going to be at this point in time. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, or I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, the person who actually does follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, not only does it, they want to do it. They want to do these things. He who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, published articles in your name, uh, went to churches that had your name on it, cast out demons in your name, done many wonderful things? Then I will declare unto them, I never knew you. We were never on the same page. You were always too busy to talk to me. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. says five were wise because they were watching and preparing. So the other five were foolish because they weren't watching, they weren't preparing, and when Christ came, they weren't ready. You know, as I mentioned in the very beginning, asking the questions, are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? What are the benefits of being a Christian? Do you want to be a Christian? Do you want to be in the kingdom of God? Hopefully God can see when you pray and when you talk with him, God, I want to be in your kingdom. I want to be there. I want to change the world. I want to help other people. It's not about me. It's about your plan. It's about your purpose. You know, the world wastes a lot of time by judging other people. And it's a trap that we can get into. Well, they're not very good Christians. 
what you're saying is, but I'm better. <laughs> this is a trap. We never want to fall into that. And what I've tried to do in the sermon is to reach not only your minds, but your hearts. I can't speak Creole, and most of you don't either. <laughs> but we can be motivated. When we see the big picture, God, I want to be there. I identify with your plan and purpose. I want to help. I want to change the world. Brethren, let's think about what we've heard today. Let's examine ourselves, not somebody else. And let's strive to become real Christians so that we can be in the kingdom of God together.